I invite you to Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. Continuing our study through this wonderful gospel. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning, and if you do not have a Bible, we have Bibles in the overflow, and we also have Bibles here in the vestibule, and we would love for you to pick up a copy today as our gift to you today. If you're able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of this portion of Scripture? The same day Sadducees came to him, so this would be still be Tuesday of Passion Week, who say there is, that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second, and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong. Because you, neither, you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Thank you. The two things you need to know, the two things you need to know. As we go to pray this morning and ask for the Lord's help, I can't help but think uh, one, of the, one of the illustrations in the book that I mentioned earlier is um, when the author visited a lot of, about a hundred or so of house church leaders in China who had gone through much suffering. They, uh, they told him that their seminary in China is prison. You don't go to a a seminary to get formal training. You go to prison for living for Christ, and when you come out of there, God's got you ready for ministry. And so that's kind of what their training is. And one of the illustrations he gives is that sitting out in that group of about 100 people, 100 pastors, he saw someone walking through the crowd with a Bible, and they were tearing several pages out of the Bible at a time and handing to each of the pastors. And he asked his guide, what's happening? And he said, well, none of them have their own Bible. 
And so before they leave this conference, we want to make sure that at least they have a few pages of Scripture to take with them. So as we've all just stood and opened up our our own copy of God's Word and had the privilege to read it in our own language, let's go to the Lord and give thanks for this treasure that we have and for how he's going to speak to us and use it for his glory today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you today. We give you glory and honor. We do thank you today for your word because it is in your word that we learn of you We learn of who we truly are. We learn of the the true ultimate reality of life and the universe and eternal life. We learn of Christ and, as Paul said to Timothy, we learn of salvation. One of the main points of our reading in your word today is directed to the Sadducees for their failure of knowing the Scriptures when they had the Scriptures in their possession. And we have the Scripture in our possession. Multiple copies. We have Bibles in all of our pews here. We have Bibles to give away. We have Bibles in our homes. We have Bibles on our phones. We have Bibles... Everywhere. I wonder how much we know the Scripture with so much Scripture around us. Because if we knew the Scripture, we would know more of the power of God in our lives in our prayers, in our living. Father, would you speak to us today in a powerful way? This is a a correction to the Sadducees, but it may be tremendous instruction for our lives. So we pray, Father, as we look to you today, as we look to your word, that your spirit will be at work and that we will be people, you will fashion us to be people who hunger and thirst to know the word and to know the power of God, that we might be like those that we've spoken of earlier who don't simply live for Jesus but with Jesus in knowing the power of God in our lives. We ask for these blessings and more in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. The two things you need to know. Last week, uh, well, not last week, was it? I wrote this sermon last week, but I didn't preach it last week. Last week, you heard a, we heard, I was at home watching. What a powerful testimony, amen? 
of grace, transformation. That's the gospel. That's the power of God. So, two weeks ago, we read where the, the Pharisees and the Herodians were, they joined together in this plot against Jesus back in verse 15. And this week we read that the Sadducees have come along and they're taking their turn at Jesus. So, so all of the influential groups in Jerusalem of Judah, they have one thing in common. They cannot abide with Christ. They cannot, they can no longer tolerate Jesus. And so they're, they're pulling out all of, the, all of their uh, tools and all of their weapons and they're going, they're trying their best to entangle Christ in some kind of conversation and in some kind of saying and some kind of work and in something in which they can entrap him and discredit him, charge him with treason, charge him with blasphemy, charge him with being a false prophet, with any and anything they can come up with. So who are these Sadducees? We don't really know a lot about the Sadducees. You don't hear as much about them as you do the Pharisees. They seem to be kind of the Jewish aristocracy, men of, men of power, men of wealth, and with all their power and, and all of their um, wealth, they're used to getting their way. And one thing about them, the way they relate to the Scripture, is they, they, only, they would really only hold to the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, called the Law or the Pentateuch. And so that's kind of the only part of the scripture that they would give any attention to and they would deny anything that they could not observe so they denied any kind of spiritual or eternal reality so they denied the resurrection because they simply could not observe it they could not get their mind around it I guess they, they would be those like, if you can't prove it by the scientific method, it must not be true. And that truly sets them apart from the Pharisees. The Pharisees would be rigorous students of all of the Old Testament, and they would believe in all of the revelation of the Old Testament, including the spiritual realm and all that God reveals there. So... These groups that are usually in disagreement with one another, the Herodians would not be in, disagree, in agreement with the Pharisees, as we saw two weeks ago. These groups that are usually in disagreement with one another are in full agreement to their opposition of Jesus. So a quick application for us this morning is to, to beware of who we align ourselves with. To beware of how we allow the influential to influence us. With all their power, again, uh, the Sadducees, they're used to getting their way. And, and when one could imagine them reasoning that, that since the Pharisees gave it their best shot and they couldn't trap Jesus, well, we'll take matters in, into our own hands. And we're, we're used to getting things done and, and, and getting, moving things and shaking things and, and moving things our direction. Little did they realize, though, they could not control Christ. He holds the world in his hands. In fact, in all of their arrogance in getting their way, 
they were actually ignorant of the two most important things in, the lo- in this life. Two of, two of the most important things. They're not the only important things, but they're certainly two of them. And that is the Scriptures and the power of God. So may the Sadducees serve as a, as a glaring warning and example to all of us. Because while being caught up in all of their earthly wealth and power, they have missed the things that are most vital. The Scriptures and the power of God. So let's walk through this passage again together in this way. Number one, when ignorance is mixed with arrogance. When ignorance is mixed with arrogance. They don't really know the scripture. And their privilege has made them extremely prideful. And whenever you mix ignorance and arrogance, it never really produces anything good. And one outcome of ignorance and arrogance is absurdity. Absurd. And that's really the only way to describe their line of questioning here. The, if you had never read this story before, as I was reading this story this morning, you were probably thinking, well, that's kind of ridiculous. That would, that would never really happen. And that's kind of the point. That's kind of the point. And, and, and it's more than likely intentional on their part. They, they think that the absurd nature of the question is actually to their benefit. So their point of denying that there's, that there's any kind of resurrection of the body, that point could have been made with only two brothers, right? If, if you follow their line of reasoning, if you have two brothers and... Then, then what do you do when you get to heaven? They, they could have made the same point. But they want to push the envelope on the teaching of the resurrection. And they want to set Jesus at odds with leaders and religious positions and interpretations of Scripture. And with people like them of just very common sense. So they set the question with seven brothers. They, they, tend to prove, they intend to prove that Jesus is not able to provide an adequate answer for this one. Now, the Pharisees couldn't get him, but we got him. They intend to prove that belief in the resurrection is actually absurd. Look at this scenario. They intend for Jesus to, for him himself to look absurd and and trying to come up with some kind of answer to, to, to answer their scenario. They are so sure and certain that everyone else involved in this is absurd, except for them arrogance and ignorance. But the truth reveals it's not Jesus actually who is absurd. And it's not belief in the resurrection that is absurd. Actually, the only absurdity here is the question and the ones who are raising it. And that's what happens when you mix arrogance 
and ignorance. And that's where sin always leads us. Down, down a path away from Scripture, ignorance. Down a path absorbed with self instead of the glory of the Lord, arrogance. And it always leads us to a life of absurdity. Sin, in the end of the day, sin makes no sense. Now, it makes perfect sense to the sinner. It makes perfect sense to the sinner. But in reality, it makes no sense at all. You can apply that to any sin of our day. Any sin of our day. I think about my own sin, especially apart from Christ, and my own arrogant, ignorant view of life is that I could, I could just simply pray a prayer and fill out a card and be baptized and I was going to heaven and then I could live my life the way I wanted to. I could do anything that Will wanted to do and I would be eternally secure in heaven as well. As long as I had walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, signed the card, been baptized. And that, that view of life is very common, but sadly, it's very ignorant. It, it knows not the scripture. And it's very arrogant to kind of assume that, that I'm going to live my way apart from Christ. Sin always leads us down that path. Another lesson for us, especially as believers, and in our day of social media, when everyone thinks they have to, they have to state their two cents worth, and everybody has to know it, and everybody has to agree with it, because if you don't, you're a hater, and if you don't, I'm going to unfriend you, and I'm going to block you, and I don't like you, because you didn't like me. <laughs> Sin also makes us very childish, doesn't it? Let's make sure as believers, our conclusions and our input is fully informed by truth and not by emotion, but especially dripping with gospel intent and gospel love and gospel focus and living because it's only the truth that sets us free. Another outcome of ignorance and arrogance is not only absurdity, but it's unbelief. And this is the saddest, most tragic of all. It's one thing to be absurd. That's embarrassing. It's another thing to be eternally wrong. Because by the time you stand before the Lord, that cannot be corrected any longer. You can correct being absurd. You cannot correct unbelief when you stand before the Lord. To deny the resurrection is to deny Christ. For he is the resurrection and the life. And if you don't have Christ, you don't have heaven. And if you don't have heaven, you don't have hope. If you don't have Christ, you've lost it all. And that's precisely where ignorance and arrogance will lead us. It's a dangerous mixture. 
And for all the trouble that they can cause in this life, they will have the potential to keep us from everlasting life. So when arrogance is mixed, when ignorance is mixed with arrogance. The second thing is the sure cure for ignorance and arrogance. So they pose this question to Jesus. It's a scenario that they are sure is going to trip him up and show how ridiculous the resurrection is and how ridiculous Jesus is and everyone else is but them. But Jesus takes their scenarios head on and he doesn't use a parable. He doesn't use an illustration like he did with the Pharisees and the Herodians taking the coin and showing them the image and drawing out the truth from that. He just cuts straight to the point, you are wrong. You are wrong. Your question is wrong. Your intent is wrong. Your beliefs are wrong. You are entirely wrong in every single way. And if we are ever truly to come to Christ as Savior, we too must come to grips with the reality that apart from Christ, we are wrong. We don't believe right. We don't live right. And we'll never be right with God apart from recognizing our depravity apart from Christ. So Jesus makes this first statement to kind of really confront their arrogance. You are wrong. And then Jesus tells them exactly why they are wrong. And these are the two points that I pray the Lord will really settle in our hearts even as believers today he says you are wrong and here's his reason because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God point being if you knew the scripture and you knew the power of God you would have never asked that question and you would have never confronted me with that kind of question For all that they think they know, they are convinced that they know, they don't know the greatest things to know in this life, the scriptures, which unveil the true reality of life and the true reality of the life everlasting and the life hereafter and, and sin and separation from God and salvation and the human condition and creation. They don't know the scriptures. They don't know the greatest things. They don't know the power of God. You see, the cure for ignorance is to know the scriptures, the eternal, unchanging, absolute truth as a guide to this life and to lead to salvation, to life eternal. The cure for ignorance is the scripture. You know not the scripture. And the cure for arrogance is to know the power of God. Humility grows where God is magnified. If you have a low view of God, you will have a very high view of yourself. If you have a very high view of God, you will have a very low view of yourself. 
I'm not talking about self-worth. Where God created us and sent his son to die for us. I'm talking about pride and self-righteousness and those kinds of things. When we struggle with pride, we simply need to lift our eyes and behold our God. He sits in the heavens. His throne is forever. God is before all things. He created all things. He holds all things together in his sovereign, all-wise, all-powerful, self-sufficient, self-existent, eternal hands. God is far greater than we can even imagine. So when Jesus says you, you don't know the scriptures... Jesus is, is correcting them for only giving attention to the, the, the Pentateuch. And they've based their argument from a verse in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. And that's why they say, Moses said, because Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. But they don't even know that scripture. They use that scripture in their argument, but they don't even know that scripture, Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. It doesn't address the next life. So to use it in their question is kind of misleading. And furthermore, at least 11 passages throughout the Old Testament refer to what can only be interpreted as a bodily resurrection. 11 So it's not like it's there or obscure or hard to find. And that's why Jesus says you are wrong because you you don't know the scripture. They didn't even know the scripture that they said they knew, much less the rest of the Old Testament, which was the scripture of New Testament days. Secondly, they didn't know the power of God. The power of God. Now they should have known the power of God. They should have known the power of God even from just looking at the Pentateuch. Even from just saying, well, we, we, we only accept the first five books of the Old Testament. Well, okay, you can go there, but you at least should know the power of God from there. The creation account itself teaches that that God created the heavens and and the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, the plants, the animals. He created everything all by merely speaking them into existence. He created man with a little bit of dust. He created woman from the rib of the man. Jesus, God the creator, just wanted them to be and they were. He just wanted it to happen, and it did. Now, if God can create man with a little dust from the earth, he can resurrect man's body in a glorified state from a little dust in the grave. That's why Jesus says, you are wrong. You do not know the scripture or the power of God. If you can believe Genesis 1 and 2, the rest comes easy. 
It's the power of God that creates. It's the power of God that recreates in the new birth. It's the power of God that's going to make all things new in the new heavens and and in the new earth. He did it once so that he might fill heaven with worshipers. He will do it again that heaven might be filled with worshipers. Dear friends, this is a word to these Sadducees, is a, is a word to us today. We, we need to get back to understanding the vital things of life and to get to know the Scripture and the power of God. We need to get back to a, a full-fledged, robust belief and trust in the power of God. There is no mountain, no trial, no hurt, no opposition, no sin, no persecution, no situation, no virus too difficult for God. His will is never thwarted even when we don't understand it. His purposes are never for our harm even when we don't see it. And his promises never fail even when we don't realize it. J.B. Phillips confronted our worries and fears and anxieties and our meager, frail Christian praying and living years ago when he wrote that our problem is this. Your God, his book says, your God is just too small. He's just too small. You don't know the power of God. That's a word to the Pharisees in Jesus' day. That's a word to me, to us, to the church in our day. We've got to get back to the Scripture. We've got to get back to digging into the Word of God. As much as I love posting Bible verses on social media, you need more than a Bible verse a day. You need more than a nice little spiritually good feeling thought pulled out of context from Scripture for the day. We have to get into the Scripture and, and, and dig in and study and, and meditate and memorize and, and digest and internalize and apply. We've got to get back to the God of the Bible We've got to get back to recognizing who we serve and who he is. That our God is sovereign. That our God is majestic and present. He's everywhere. He sees everything. If your God was bigger, you wouldn't do the things that you do. You wouldn't say the things that you say if you realized how big your God is. I wouldn't either. We don't know the scripture. That's our problem. That's why our faith is weak. Our Christian living is weak. Our Christian saying is weak. Our Christian commitment is weak. Weak. We make 10,000 excuses. The commandments of God die from a thousand existential caveats that we throw at it. Yes, this is true, except for this, 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 except for this. And we make it no longer true. Because we don't know the scripture. 
and we don't know the power of God. We've got to pursue these two great ends. I implore you, I beg you. For the rest of our lives, to know the Bible and to know the power of God. And so the last thing here is Jesus gives two answers for two problems. Ignorance and arrogance. So he says, here's why you're wrong. You don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. And now he's going to answer their question by really answering their problems of ignorance and arrogance. And so in verse 30, he says, for. So he's answering. And in verse 30, he's going to expose their ignorance here. Because Jesus not only confronts their disbelief in the resurrection and in holding to all of Scripture, all that God has revealed, now he also confronts their disbelief in angels. He, I, I think he just kind of reasons this way just to also show you don't believe in this either for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven so he's saying they do exist they are in heaven and you don't believe in them either because you see if they truly knew the pentateuch if they truly knew the scripture that they said was their scripture if they truly understood the power of God, then they would have believed in angels. Angels show up in Genesis 19, Genesis 28, Genesis 32. They're all over the place. And now when Jesus says believers in heaven will be like the angels, he's not saying that we become angels. Let's, let's straighten up our theology of heaven right quick and, and make sure that we're not telling everybody that there's another angel in heaven when one of our dear departed loved ones go to heaven. No, we don't become angels. We become like angels in this sense. Remember context, context, context drives our understanding and interpretation. We'll be like the angels in this. Angels don't marry. Angels don't marry or are given in marriage, and when we get to heaven, we won't marry or be given to marriage. Why? Because the angels are in the very presence of God. They are filled to overflowing with the joy and exuberance and satisfaction of the presence of God. And so will we. So will we. Now, if you knew the scriptures and the power of God, Jesus is telling them, you wouldn't be asking that question. Genesis Genesis teaches that one of the fundamental purposes of marriage is to reproduce. Multiply and fill the earth, Jesus told Adam and Eve. Go fill the earth with image bearers. Those who reflect the very image of God. Make sure that the earth is covered with image bearers. And how does that happen? Through God's good design and purpose for marriage. Multiplying and filling the earth happens after marriage. But at the resurrection, all God's children have been born and reborn and heaven is filled with glad worshipers who never die. So there's no longer any reason in that particular sense, or need for marriage or being married. 
I want to say a word here to all those who have a, a beloved spouse who is already in heaven. Many of us in this congregation are sitting here and our loved ones are already in the presence of the Lord. Our hearts are even this day with Teresa who has said so long, see you later, see you in a little while to Buck who is in heaven with the Lord. Let me say this to you. God gave us marriage as a gift to display the gospel. That's what marriage is, a gift to display the gospel, Ephesians 5. All of God's gifts are good. All of God's gifts are good. And I know that that you can't imagine being reunited with your spouse and not being married. That's hard for you to grasp because the the love and the two becoming one and and all of that glory of God's goodness and the gift of marriage you enjoyed and you experienced and your loved one has departed and you can't imagine that relationship being any different because it was so full, it was so rich. Well, the reason why it was so full and it was so rich is because that's God's way, that's God's gifts. If marriage God's way, listen to me, if marriage God's way can be that fulfilling and that satisfying and that rewarding in this life to the degree that you miss it so at the death of your spouse, we can be sure, we can be absolutely sure that what God has in store for us will far surpass what we can even imagine. Think of our treasure verse. The point is, the relationships we had here on this earth, the God-centered relationships, the gospel-thriving relationships of family and friends that we enjoyed here on this earth, that joy and that fulfillment and that satisfaction, they won't be this, it won't be the same in heaven, but it will be multiplied. Things aren't less in heaven. They're greater. They're greater. Now in verse 31, so in verse 30, Jesus is exposing their ignorance. In verse 31, he's exposing their arrogance. And so in verse 31, Jesus asks, have you not read? And then he quotes, guess what? Exodus chapter 3 verse 6, which of course they should have read if they held to the Pentateuch. See, a lot of people say they're people of the Bible, but we don't know the Bible. 
And Jesus says, have you not read? And, and he quotes Exodus 3, 6. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, by the time of Exodus, when God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush in chapter 3, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have been long dead. But God doesn't say, now I was Abraham's God, I was Isaac's God, I was, he says, I am Abraham's God, I am Isaac's God, I am Jacob's God, meaning they are still living and I am still their God, even though their bodies have been laid to rest for years. They are still alive. They are with God in heaven. The point is this. Jesus is saying, if you believe God is powerful enough to bring your soul to heaven when you die. Imagine that. Imagine that. We have absolutely, we want to talk about how much willpower we have and how much free will we have and, and how much we do. What, you know, how are you going to get your soul to heaven? How are you going to do How am I going to do that? Jesus is saying, if God is powerful enough to bring your soul to heaven when you die, why do you question his ability to raise your body to new life at the resurrection? Answer, your God is too small. You don't know the power of God. If he can create you, if he can recreate you, if you can bring your soul to heaven, he can raise your body to a glorified state. The Sadducees, they certainly were, were a sad bunch, wasn't they? The saying used to be the Sadducees were very sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They were a sad bunch of people. Because they didn't know the scripture. And they didn't know the power of God. But those who do, those who do give themselves in hunger and thirst for righteousness and to know the scripture and in knowing the scripture know the power of God. Those who do have a joy and a satisfaction and an overflow and an abundant life here on this earth that only increases and only overflows in heaven. And I pray that God would make us here at Grassy Pond those kinds of people who know the scripture and know the power of God. Let's pray. You have been listening to the sermon ministry of Will Owens, pastor of Grassy Pond Baptist Church, Gaffley, South Carolina. Be sure to visit willowens.com to hear more sermons, read blogs, and learn more about the missions branch, P67 Missions. Again, thank you for listening to Will Owens.